G'day, Osher here. Thanks for downloading the show. I appreciate it very, very much. Pam Ahern is on the show today. She's fantastic. And before we get to Pam, you might hear an ad because podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So if you do hear an ad, it really helps us keep the lights on here because I don't make this show alone. Um, there's Rachel Barrett, my executive producer. There's Andy Ma, my audio producer. And we have a new team member, Brianna who's working hard on um, research and uh, extra production. And it's really great. Extra producing, I should say. And it's really great. So I need to pay these people. And if you hear an ad, you're going to help me pay them. So thank you. And after the ads, if you hear an ad, you might not. If you hear an ad, you'll hear something from Pam. Here we go. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I only have to go back to my youth. You know, we'd get in the car and we'd go for drives in the country to try and find animals to look at. We would never, ever put a seatbelt on. We never put a seatbelt on. We weren't bad people. We weren't thumbing our nose at the law. It wasn't the law. But society was looking at how we can make car travel safer because people were being killed as a result of car accidents. How we can make it safer. We were never going to stop driving cars. We were going to find a safer way of doing things because new information came along. We were scrutinising what we were doing. And now we're being called to scrutinise our food supply because what it's doing to animals, what it's doing to people, what it's doing to the planet and what it's doing to our humanity. And we must have the courage to do that and also the compassion. That is animal activist and founder of Edgar's Mission, Pam Ahern. And this is episode 382 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. 
Pam Ahern is on the show today. She is the founder of the not-for-profit farm sanctuary in rural Victoria known as Edgar's Mission. She's been rescuing animals for nearly 20 years. It's a really, really interesting story. I can't wait for you to hear it. We'll get into it in just a second. I'm Osha Ginsberg. If this is the first time you're listening to the show, I'm a TV guy and a book writing guy and a dad and a stepdad and a husband from Sydney, Australia. I've been making this podcast since 2013, and this podcast is simply something that's going to help you make today better than yesterday. That's it. Something here on the show, you'll go to bed tonight and go, you know what? I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that today, and because I heard it, today's better than it was. That's it. I've been doing this since 2013. On Mondays, I'm here with a guest. On Fridays, I'm here with you. You can always email me if you want. It's super simple. Send Osher email at gmail.com which is where we are, and um, it'd be lovely to hear from you. I always do like to see what you're looking at when you're listening to the show. I just really like it. I like seeing what you're seeing when you're listening. I don't know why. It's just this is kind of cool. Um, thanks for all the uh, the feedback. I appreciate it. Thank you particularly to uh, those of you who write in about the Friday shows. They've been going pretty well, which is cool. I hope you tried some polyvagal breathing over the weekend. If you don't know what polyvagal breathing is, slide on back <laughs> to the last episode, which is on Friday, and uh, try some for yourself. So let me tell you about my guest today. Pam Ahern is the founder of the not-for-profit farm sanctuary, Edgar's Mission. It's in rural Victoria, and it started with Pam rescuing one piglet. She gets into the story, but the short version is that she rescued a little piglet called Edgar Allan Pig, one little piglet, and it's nearly 20 years later. She's rescued over 6,000 animals since then, and the sanctuary where she lives, where she works, has over 450 animals there. She's an incredible person. She is full of kindness. She is full of joy. She is full of empathy. She really changed her life to do this. And the path that she was on before she diverged and went full on into animal animal rights activism is really interesting. She completely changed her life because of a pig, because of one pig. Mind-blowing. She works full-time. She takes no time off. She takes no salary. And she works there at Edgar's Mission, which is the... Um, Named after the pig that she first that she first rescued, I met Pam. Uh, we did a panel together at uh, Melbourne Writers Festival a few years back. She's a fascinating person. She is, as many people who have dedicated their lives so strongly to something stronger than I could have ever done. She's a very powerful person, and she has a dedication to this that is. I think you just have to have if you want to dedicate yourself as hard as she has to this, to what is a very, very difficult thing to do. Now, like I said, they're a not-for-profit and you can support Edgar's mission. They uh, actually have a cookbook that they've called uh, Kindness Community Vegan Cookbook and um, Audrey's Eggplant Parmigiana made it in there. It's pretty sick. Um, it's a great, great uh, recipe and uh, I was grateful that Audrey let me put it in that book. So you can track that down and get that book. It's really good. It's kind of interesting when you start talking about animals and animal rights. I've not eaten uh, animal product since 2002, so 19 years. I am a firm believer in that what you put into your mouth is your business. I have no right telling you what you should and shouldn't eat. And I tend not to 
have these conversations with people. I try to live by example. I try to attraction, not promotion is how I try to do it. I have personally been quite turned off by people who are can be quite self-righteous and quite better than when it comes to such things. I find the race to purity that happens once you get into some dogmatic thinking, whatever it is, to just be not really what I think it's about. I'm a firm believer that perfect should not be the enemy of good. And just getting people to eat less meat, I think, is important. My personal journey towards being plant-based has a lot to do with resources, has a lot to do with how much land and water and food is used to create the meat that people eat. The compassionate part of things is a part of that, did come later. But I, you know, I firmly, firmly believe that, and I've met some, I've met some really intelligent, incredibly emotionally nuanced pigs in my life who have complicated family structures, who have methods of communication. And I cover this with Pam. I'm pretty sure I feel emotion, most definitely feel pain and fear pain and want to avoid suffering. I've met these animals in my life. I've met, you know, really lovely cattle. I've met really, really feisty chickens who have, you know, just like your pet dog in your house has a great personality. The animals that we use as food have similar amounts of personality and it is confronting to recognise that. It is conf- I understand that it is confronting. I understand that it is confronting to recognise that if you do eat meat, that there is a amount of suffering and pain that happens to a sentient being so you can eat that. Now... I'm married to a Fijian and my wife, Audrey, uh, never met a thing that she didn't feel like eating, all right? (laughs) She eats very healthily, mind you, but like I've watched Audrey butcher a pig from hoof to snout, but she's very, very aware, you know, where the way she grew up, she's very, very aware of what it is to take an animal's life and eat an animal. And I think for me, that's kind of all I really, I, I just want people to start with that to understand what it is they're doing. And even that for me, I think even that makes me feel a bit weird, asking people to do that. But like I said, what you put in your mouth is your business. It's up to you. But I hope you can approach this conversation knowing that I don't think you're wrong for eating what you eat. I think you're just great. And whatever you want to make yourself for dinner and whatever you want to feed your family is just fine. Okay? Absolutely. And what you choose, if you choose at all to alter your diet, your reasons are great, whatever they are. And that's fine with me. Okay? Okay. Because I think you're awesome. And I'm, I'm not trying to tell you what you should or shouldn't do. But um, I'm hoping that you'll hear something in here that resonates. So enjoy this conversation with the founder of Edgar's Mission, Pam O'Hearn. Hello again, Pam. How are you? Good, thank you. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And thank you for your contribution to our book. Oh, look, I'm grateful. My wife was a little concerned that the recipe wasn't all that flash. And I said, you don't understand, hun. 
It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a, it is fantastic. I love it. You should try. I, I really dig it too. And we've just our eggplant tree, egg tree plant, our eggplant plant <laughs> in the front of our house is just starting to fruit. So it's going great. I think the last time we saw each other, Pam, was at the Melbourne Writers Festival. We did a panel, if you remember, with Marie Hardy. Yes, yeah, I didn't know if you'd remember me. Yes, about two years ago. Yeah, that's the last time we saw each other. But I'm so grateful that we can get you on the on the show today because I'm I'm not backward in coming forward about telling people that I don't eat animal products, and you know it's fairly accepted, I guess, these days. But I don't actually talk too much about my own story. I kind of gloss over it. Uh, a little bit. I wrote about it in my book, but I think your particular way that you came to where you are and also now the work that you do with Edgar's mission, I think, I feel it's a path that a lot of people can resonate with about how there's many different ways to get there, but I was hoping that we might be able to talk about that because it, I think it's quite relatable in many ways. Are we, do we find you at the at the farm today? Is that where you are? Absolutely, yes. You're lucky that there's no smell here because I've been working all morning. So it's a bit sweaty this end. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us a, you know, to give an exact location, where's your farm? Uh, we're at Lansfield in Victoria, about 60, 70 kilometres north of Melbourne in the beautiful Macedon Ranges. Oh, Macedon, so it's it's hilly country, it's flat country? We are, we're on the um, outer skirts of, of the hills. It's a little bit undulating. It's absolutely beautiful. If I look to my south, I can see um, Mount Macedon and I can see the camel's hump. And if I, I walk a little, little bit over to the west, I can see Hanging Rock as well. Wow. And that's the second location you've you've come to, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, we started out in, in Willamaven outside of a little town called Kilmore. But honestly, having a sanctuary near a town called Kilmore is probably <laughs> thinking. So we've moved over here to our nearest big town is, is Kyneton, which is sort of like Kine Town, and that's probably where you should have a sanctuary. <laughs> you grew up in Melbourne, didn't you? Did grow up in, in Thornbury, a tiny little suburb now. And no, it's not now. It was a tiny little suburb then. It was was, was my world. It was in um, a very tiny world. But um, yeah, I thought that was the extent of the world. The end, it went to Alston Street and that was where I thought the world stopped. But I've found the world is a lot, lot bigger than that. Yeah. What did that world consist of? What was it like? A small family. It was my mom, my dad and my older sister. But I've always been a very um, independent child, a very happy, when I say with my own company, that makes me sound a little bit weird, but I'm quite happy to pot around on my own. I would spend hours in our backyard and that really was my world. We had two cats, Blackie and Tiny, and a lovely, goofy Labrador named Laddie. He was a gorgeous dog, although he did used to occasionally mistake me for a tree, but... um, it just made the relationship even more special. And and from those three animals, it taught me so much about animals and how different they are, but how much they want to experience the world and all of her magic. And and also the bees. I remember in the backyard, I would spend hours watching the bees flutter from plant to plant. And I'd hold a little bee in my hand, my tiny little child hand, and the bee would just sit there. And I could feel the bee's wings fluttering against my hand. It was just so special. I'd let the bee go. And then an adult saw me do this one day and they said to me, oh, Pam, you know, don't do that, you'll, you'll get stung. And I said, oh, well, really? I didn't realise bees sting. And they said, and when you do that, you know, when the bee stings you, the bee will die. And I was horrified that something that I, I did could actually cause another animal to suffer. So I did actually have another go about holding the bee afterwards, but I think I'd actually learnt fear. And I remember I got stung that time and I've never held a bee in my hand <sighs> since since then and it just sort of says speak to childhood innocence we have that we do things and I think animals do feed off the aura that we give off whether we're happy whether we're sad and I think it's that intuition and I think we've lost that in sometimes of our you know evolutionary trajectory I think we actually we did read those things a lot better animals it 
if you think about it, you know, it pays animals to actually learn to read the feelings of another because if you're a prey animal and there's someone coming with ill intent, by the time you find out there's ill intent, you're going to be eaten. So just from that early age, I actually started to read animals and learn about their behavior. And then I saw a pony and I was just <laughs> fascinated. And, and I wanted a pony of my very own. But we were city folk and my parents weren't particularly well off and my pleadings for a pony fell on deaf ears. But my mum always said that the worst thing you say to your Pam is you can't. Yeah. And it wasn't because I was a belligerent child, you know, one of those ones just wanted to get and, and be a pain in the neck at that. I love to challenge. I love to explore like how far can you possibly go with something? So the intrepid five-year-old that I was, I got my scooter. I took the wheels off my scooter. I borrowed a pair of my mum's pantyhose. I tied a tie to each end of the pantyhose. I put them over the kitchen stool. And I used to ride that around the house for hours. And I think my mum got sick of having any pantyhose and and all the noise I made. She took me down to the local pony club. And that's where my relationship with with farm animals really began and really had the trajectory in learning learning about animals, but also what I was capable of. And it is an incredible journey. It's interesting what you took, the bee story, I see it in our own, we've got two kids, one's a teenager, nearly 17, and the other one's just about 18 months. And he's got a little bunny soft toy, right? And the other day he was playing around with one of the kitchen drawers and bunny got caught in one of the drawers and he couldn't figure out how to open the drawer again. And this little boy, he was, was about a month ago, he came running out to mum, screaming, mum, 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 and uh, bunny, bunny, bunny. And he's, she's like, what, 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 bunny, bunny? And he ran back and he's pointing that bunny's trapped. Now, we've never told him, be careful for other things. We haven't taught him. Like, it was just such a clear evidence to me that we're born with empathy. We're born oh, with absolutely. compassion. He came out of the womb knowing that another creature was in pain and he had, if not, he'd anthropomorphized some, you know, kind of level of, I know if I get stuck in that drawer, it hurts. So this thing is hurting and I, I, I don't want it. And that's, you know, it really kind of strikes me that, you know, you had that experience as well. When you were little, you know, we talk about what our parents tell us and, you know, until you got told that bees, you know, can sting you, you were like, okay, we just believe what our folks tell us. We believe the, the grown-ups. What was dinner time like when you were little? We ate animals and I remember questioning it at the time when I was actually, you know, told that 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 was actually, you know, a lamb chop and and what the lamb chop was. And there was a part of me that didn't want to believe that we could do that. There was this disconnect. And I was also told it was necessary that that everybody else around me did it. So you had these these two worlds competing inside you. And we look up to our parents as as noble, kind and good and and parents are always right and we, we don't question them so that that conflict stayed there but was squashed for a while and I think it, it does actually as you mentioned our, our natural empathy is to care about other living beings and that is what gets me up every single day of the week is that I truly believe in the goodness of the human heart and that we are a species are programmed to care the beautiful thing about the way the world is today is that we are encouraged to explore our values. Whereas when I grew up, we weren't really encouraged to explore our values. We were told that was the way of the world and that was why you do things. So it actually takes a lot of courage, but also compassion to step outside of those ingrained values that we had and to form our own values. Another example I I like to talk about is that when I was young, I used to barrack for Collingwood and I'd go around the house going, come the pies, come the pies. And then uh, because my dad barracked for Collingwood and, you know, dad, dads are wise and wonderful and they're always right. And my dad barracked for Collingwood, his dad barracked for Collingwood. It was an Ahern tradition to barrack for Collingwood. But then I started to think about it and, well, Collingwood wasn't really that cool a team and actually 
I didn't really like football. What I wanted to do was to grab my scooter, rip the wheels off, grab my mum's panties and ride my imaginary horse around the kitchen. That was what I wanted to do. But it does speak to that so many values that we inherit from other people and that we do them for so long that we actually don't question them. And that's one of the greatest things I really love to see, people starting questioning the values that we have and are they our values or ones that we've inherited from other people? And when we start to align our ethics and our actions, I think it's going to be a better world, not just for us people, but for animals as well and the planet. Well, it, it, it takes cognitive reflection to do that, you know, it takes, and which is a stretch because to have cognitive reflection, one must firstly consider that my current belief set might not be correct. And we have to let allow our ego to go and take a back seat. We have to be open to the possibility that, oh, okay, I believe this thing this whole time, whatever it is, I guess I was wrong. And that can be sometimes our, our ego state won't allow us to even go near it. And in fact, you know, and I've I'm sure you have too, encountered aggressive resistance when I tell someone or someone asks me about my personal choice to put what I want into my mouth, how it's, it triggers a huge reaction about from this other person. And I, I find that kind of interesting. Do you remember sitting around the, the table, you know, finding out about the, the lamb and, and certainly spending more time at the pony club and then being in a slow, more, more, more kind of rural environment as you started to see these animals more and more? Did, did you ever start to go, oh, maybe dinner, I won't have that? It, it's really funny how we... Um we, we set values that, that make us feel comfortable. I remember mum served us rabbit one time and we'd never had rabbit before. And she told us this was rabbit and, and rabbit as the food is so close to rabbit, the animal. And to my shame, my sister and I protested, but it wasn't so much for ethical <laughs> reasons. It was because we thought that the, the Easter bunny was going to be really ticked off when we found out that we'd been eating his his buddies and we weren't going to get any Easter eggs that year. So we protested so long and so loud that we actually were never served rabbit again. But um, it, it did actually start that questioning about why are some animals classed as friends and some animals classed as food and some animals are classed as the Easter bunny. And uh, it, it speaks to when we actually put labels on things, it does actually circumvent our ethical thought and, and justifies it the way we treat them. These are food animals. These are friend animals and these are wild animals and compartmentizing animals and even people it, it does justify why we do things in our mind and it circumvents that ethical thought and if you look at the um, evolution of you know ethical progress our ability to embrace those that we consider other has been the determinant of where we act you know there was a time when it was the color of one's skin it was the religion one followed and even the gender you know women didn't have the vote for you know, it was a hundred years ago, simply because of our gender. And there's no way knowing that, you know, if I rocked up to vote today, that I would be turned away simply because of my gender. And it's that ability to embrace those differences, I think, is, is a determinant of who we are. And it was uh, Chief Justice Michael Kirby of the High Court several years ago that said, you know, the way we treat animals is our next great social justice movement. And I really think he's he's on the money there. It's not that, you know, animals are a human coloured in, you know, furred, feathered, fleeced or, or fin suits. They're other living beings. They're other living beings with the capacity to, to feel uh, happiness and joy and suffering and fear in, in pretty much the same way we do. And then we need to look at what we are doing and how the choices that we make in our life in, impact upon those other beings. And, and it can, as you said, be very, very confronting. You know, some people, when it's been a family tradition to being raising animals for food and fibre, to actually say, well, actually, I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. It takes a lot of courage. And, and as you mentioned before, you know, evaluating yourself and saying, actually, I, I, I did a wrong thing because it puts people in a position of shame. 
And when we're in a position of shame, you know, we start to shut down. And and that's the last thing I want someone to do is actually think, oh, to feel shamed of what they did. Because honestly, there's no other person alive who has never made a poor decision in their life. But there's a wonderful thing that there's never a point in our life where we can't say, I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. When you were, you know, going through your teenage years, help help me understand this. My my wife was fascinated with horses. She even went and trained as a Jillaroo for a while. And um, there's nothing quite like seeing her um, whisper in a horse's ear and it just like going off to a gallop without her having to do anything to it. Like she can do that sort of thing. Tell me about what it is that you got from being around these big, majestic animals. An incredible sense of freedom to be on the back of another living being and that that oneness although I was a very successful equestrian it was never my aim to be successful um, I think that was the added benefit of that relationship that I had with horses I never went on to to really train horses and be, be commercial which I could have done I was often asked to train other horses for people and to give lessons and, and I did it a little bit but it was never my aim because the thing for me was actually developing a relationship with another living being and really getting inside their head and and feeling that sense of oneness a lot of my successful most successful horses were ex-race horses that came along with all this sort of baggage from the racing industry now a little bit wayward and really connecting with those horses. I mean, he's, he's 500 kilos and I was, you know, 50 kilos driven wet. And to allow me to sit on the back of this beautiful animal and to call the shots with unity and, and with beauty and with majesty, it was just an incredible, incredible feeling. I don't think anything comes close to it. And I just loved those relationships that I had with the horses. And I have so many incredible, wonderful memories. And I, and I remember thinking at the time, this is what I will do. This is what I will do for the rest of my life. I, I will die in the saddle. I will never do anything else. And then towards the end of my equestrian career, I felt this sort of tugging at me that, that's actually, you know, you're not going to be here. And I actually tried to divorce myself from those thoughts. And I know I, I don't, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to listen to you. I, I'm, I'm doing what I love. I, I really enjoy this. I'm going around the country to all sorts of horse shows and winning wonderful awards and, and just having these really wonderful relationships with horses. And it was actually, no, you need to do something else. You you need to get down off your horse and really champion the cause for animals. And when I told um, my friends and, and peers that I was giving up, they couldn't believe it. Like, why are you giving up? You're so successful. You've got one of the most beautiful horses you've ever had. But for me, the time was right. I really couldn't have achieved any more than what I was done. I would have just been going on doing the same. And again, it speaks to the pain in the neck person that I am. I like to explore what I can do and I really needed to champion the cause of animals and I realized what was tugging at me and it was a gentle humble handsome dashing debonair pig named Edgar Allen who, who's really tugged me to where I need to be we'll get to the Edgar Allen pig in a moment <laughs> but I just want to touch on something that you you mentioned before and, and I think it's important to address this because I experience it with every, I've experienced it with every non-aquatic pet that I've owned I, I read my you know, companion animals or you read your horse's uh, reactions as an emotional response, how do we know that's not us anthropomorphizing or projecting that emotion onto this animal because it has enough either eye movements or facial movements that are mimicking uh, what we recognise as a human emotion or an ear position or something like that? How do we know that it is an actual emotion and not just, I know that if I do this, there's a snack? Mm. And that's a that's a really really good point. And I think to a certain extent we we do that because of convenience. You know, we and our ego. Like our dog loves me. You know, our horse loves me. And um, Carl Safina did lovely talk about this. And why is it always about us? 
why is it always about us? You know, we, we think we're, we're the center of the universe. And I, and I look back on a lot of the things that I didn't see it through fresh eyes and, and analyze it differently. And there's a book I read that my, my mother gave me, God love her. And one of the lines in this book said, what if he doesn't want to be written today? And up until I put, I've never really had asked myself, what what if he doesn't want to be written? Like, you know, we actually, we get on these horses and and we dominate them and we get them to do things. But, but what if he doesn't want to do it? It's a testament to the horses, uh, a wonderful nature that they allow us to do those things. So I certainly look at it differently. But back to your question, how do we know that? And to a certain extent, we will never know. Like, you can tell me you're happy. You can be smiling and look like you're happy. But I really don't know. I really don't know. I cannot get inside your head of, of a species the same as me. I can see lots of outward projections that, that indicate that you're happy, but I really, really don't know. So we've got to look for, you know, obvious things. You know, we can do blood tests and, and look at corticosteroids in, in, in the blood and see those sorts of things as well. But we, we really don't know 100% what, what another being is actually thinking. And I think it's something that we need to actually look at just because we don't know doesn't mean we can't try and understand and I think it speaks to the greatness of our humanity we actually try and understand what these other beings are thinking and are doing and do they have the ability to express their uniqueness and I think that's a really good barometer to do that are we allowing them to be everything that they can possibly be or are we just giving them constraints in which they can do that and I think that when I look back at, at the horses, a lot of it actually was of our making. You know, we would we put them in, in, in boxes and keep them in there at night and we'd bandage their legs up. We would, would put them out in the paddock with other horses because we didn't want them to hurt themselves. But is that a really good life for them? Is that, is that a life really worth living? And that's one of the things that, you know, I ask myself every day with the animals here at the sanctuary. Are you having a life worth living? And it has to be a life truly worth living. Mm. And when we get to the point with some animals' life and they're not having a life worth living and they're never going to have a, a life worth living, whether it's age-related or the illnesses or injuries that they're suffering, you know, we do help them pass from this world. And it's one of the things that when we start to question, I think we turn up more questions than answers. But again, I think just because we go into that area, we still need, we need to really pursue those questions to be better individuals and to provide the animals in our world better care and to give them lives truly worth living. Much like the corn that is currently growing in our front yard, that's not what corn looked like in the wild. We have planted a seed that has been, goodness, hundreds of thousands of times propagated from the most successful crops to the point where it'll grow even in the shitty sandy soil that we have at our place with not a lot of sun. This corn will produce something that we can eat. So in the same way, the animals that you talked about, and it was interesting, these are friend animals, these are food animals, these are wild animals. The friend and the food animals, both of those are pretty much for the most part, largely created by human intervention through breeding and selective breeding. I doubt there are many carnivores who would be like, can't wait to have a gorilla burger tonight. It is just clearly a wild animal. We have, you know, created this animal, this cow, uh, this bull. We've put them together over hundreds and hundreds of years to create this particular breed, particularly with dogs, you know, in my experience. They've been bred. The ones that were the least like wolves likely to bite my neck out the ones that were most responsive to human facial interactions are the ones that have survived. So my dogs, I mean, Christ, they're cavoodles, you know, <laughs> as, as created and as, and as man-made as can be. You know, what does the human intervention in the development of these species as we know them, what does that have to do with their ability to not only read us as humans but respond in their own identity, in their own emotion? 
And another thing that, that we should touch on there is also our duties to those animals. Mm. We actually have a, a kindness trail that meanders around the sanctuary here, and we've got quotes from some of the human finest human minds along the way. And the very, very first quote on our kindness trail is this, that many have forgotten this truth, but you must not forget it. You remain responsible forever for what you have tamed. And that really doesn't only speak to um, Edgar's mission, it speaks to our humanity's relationship with the animal kingdom and, and 10,000 years ago when you know, the domestication of, of the wolf into the dog started to happen, we did irrevocably change the lives of these animals and with that become duties upon us to do that and, and you spoke about dogs there and there's a huge campaign at the moment against the brachycephalic dogs you know, once the squashed up noses because we think they look kind of huge but in doing that these, these animals have difficulty breathing and who does that to an animal to breed an animal to suffer? You know, you remain responsible for everything you have tamed. And the BBC one did a, a documentary several years ago, uh, Pedigree Dogs Exposed, and it dealt with the pedigree breeding of dogs in England about how we've picked these traits that we think look kind of cool that have nothing to do with the welfare of dogs. And it put the breeding world on notice. You know, several people called their support of the Croc Dog Show. It's the biggest dog show in the world as a result of their concerns about the welfare breeding of dogs. And it also put the breeders on notice. And now we're trying to breed you know, dogs with longer snouts, um, with German shepherds not having that sloping back that causes them to suffer the hip dysplasia and this is great because we're actually thinking about these animals in our world but the largest number of animals in human care are, are birds and of that is is the birds that we eat the birds bred for their flesh or other known as broiler chickens now these birds have been selectively bred for rapid growth and for huge conversion of food to muscle mass very very quickly exponentially so that they reach their target slaughter weight in around five weeks wow. uh, they're actually trying to breed these birds to get to that target slaughter weight in in three weeks you know isn't that awesome and obviously there's a lot a lot a lot of welfare issues that, that go with that like if a human baby grew at that growth rate i think at two months they're like you know 200 kilos or some um incredible incredible figure that would be outrage if, if we saw that happening before our eyes. But these birds, that happens to them in sheds and we never see their suffering. You know, they factor in um, in Australia a 5% loss of those birds that never get to their slaughter weight. Well, 5% is not much. But that translates to around 20 million birds never get to their target slaughter weight because they die of health-related issues for how we have bred them. Now, if you ever spend time with a chicken, you will realise that they have incredible personalities. They may be small in size, but that is the only thing that's small about them. Everything is big. Their personality is big. Even their poops are big. They are just incredibly wonderful birds with a diverse range of personalities, yet we've bred these animals to suffer. The most interesting thing about it, all these things we've bred with these birds, but they still want to perch. They still want to scratch around in the soil. We've taken these birds out of the jungle but we have never been able to take the jungle out of these birds. They still have that DNA in them that tell them they want to be a chicken. And I think that's really incumbent upon us to start looking at these things. And these are uncomfortable questions because people make money out of raising these birds. People make money um, selling the birds and it employs lots of people. But does that justify doing these things to another sentient being? And when people say, oh, it's only a chicken, Pam, you know, it's only a sheep, it's only a cow, once we say it is only a part of our heart starts to die and we become desensitised to the suffering of another living being. And then it's so easy to see others in people. Are they, you know, they're those and they're that. And we desensitise ourselves to the fact that that is another human being and we really need to start caring about all those we share the planet with because we're in this together. And as that wonderful quote, there's no planet B. It's interesting. You mentioned language before. A chicken on a plate is chicken. A chicken in a pen is a hen or a rooster. They don't have the same name. A cow in a field is, is a cow. On my plate, it's beef. We decouple the sentience of the creature 
through linguistics, which I think, you know, that's that's a, another conversation, but I think it's something to be to be aware of. If people have gotten this far in the show and they're listening and they're like, yeah, 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 but I'm hungry and, you know, I've got these teeth for a reason. I have these digestive enzymes for a reason. And, you know, what, what do you say to that argument around using animals for nutrition and survival for many people on the planet? I think um, we encapsulate, I think, that beautifully in Edgar's mission quote and our logo. And, you know, if we could live happy and healthy lives without harming others, why wouldn't we? And that's when I really encourage people to think about that if we can nourish nourish our, our, our body, but also nourish our soul with foods that don't cause suffering, why on earth don't we do that? Now, there's enormous toll, not only for the animals, but our soul when we actually uh, partake in violence. You know, that violence doesn't just stop on our plate. You know, we are desensitized to the suffering of these animals. And it's ah, oh, there's there's so much that when you actually start looking at these things, and and you get to the point where you know you mentioned yourself, you, you don't eat animals, and and where I don't eat, I think, how on earth didn't I wake up to this sooner? Because everything that I'm doing really is in keeping with with all the values that I believe in. You know, um, abattoir workers suffer terribly for the choices that people make. You know, working in an abattoir, taking the life of animals who don't want to die. They pay an enormous price for that. There's a condition called PITS, and literally it's the PITS, perpetrator-induced traumatic syndrome. And they found this actually was happened from um, soldiers who came back from war who were in arm-to-arm combat where they had to take the life of another living being. It, it goes against everything that we, we, we believe and we really don't want to cause harm to others. And there's instances when, you know, they were on either side, you know, shooting, and they'd actually shoot above uh, the enemy trying to scare them off so they actually didn't have to kill them because they didn't want to take the life of another being. And when they did, it didn't stop being, you know, they come back and they would suffer terribly from that. And, you know, slaughterhouse workers, they found that, you know, their mental health suffers terribly from what they are forced to do in, in those industries that doesn't stop at the gate when, when they leave. And I think we need to think about what we're actually paying other people to do. In all honesty, you know, there are people who go out and hunt for their food, granted, but most people couldn't actually take the life of an animal who doesn't want to die because we do empathize with another living being and i think it's one of the beautiful things that edgar's mission where people can come and actually meet these rescued farmed animals see what their lives are really like and then decide for themselves how they think that they should live one of the things that i'm adamant about the sanctuary is that we will never tell people what to do or what not to do i for one haven't got the right to do that i haven't got the authority to do that and even if i did that i've got no guarantee that they would do it and, and you spoke a, a little while ago about you know the foods we eat i've been um a vegan for over 30 years gosh more than that i'm, I'm getting older by the minute um but i remember that i had an epiphany I, I overnight cold turkey for want of a better word there was no more animal products in my diet i proudly announced to my mother that we were vegans and uh, that was it no more animal products and um the only non-dairy milk you could get at the time it was powdered stuff you got it in the box you mix it up with water it tasted absolutely disgusting and I thought, how am I going to sell this to other people? I'm having trouble downing it, but I knew what it meant to a mother cow and her baby calf to drink dairy. I wasn't going back. Thankfully, now I can go to my little supermarket in downtown Lance, where our population is 1,204. I can buy soy milk, rice milk, oat milk, macadamia milk, almond milk, all these sorts of milk that don't involve animals. 
And that is a wonderful thing. Society is progressing. We've got all sorts of different food. Mum and I raced out and bought tofu because that was what good vegans ate. We ate it raw. We didn't know how to cook it. (laughs) Where was our cookbook back then when we needed them? Thankfully, now we know how to cook it. I've made friends with tofu and eggplant. I would never have eaten eggplant before. Love eggplant, love mushrooms, all these things that I never would have eaten before, but now how to cook them and, and exploring the palate and how your palate actually feels a lot cleaner without it being lined with animal fats and and i have a bit of a chuckle about you know being a vegan i was i was a vegan for a while and i ran into someone down the track who i wasn't a very good vegan because i didn't pronounce it correctly the word was vegan pam you've been pronouncing it wrong that's how isolated i was at the time living in in country rural victoria i didn't even know how to pronounce the word but now and, and quite interestingly thanks to a multi-million dollar campaign by meat and livestock of all places everybody knows how to pronounce the word vegan um, when they're making fun of us vegans so it's um good on them people know how to pronounce vegan I've got to say that story, like the real hero of that story has got to be your mum. It's got to be your mum for just going, okay, kid, and going with it. Absolutely. My poor mum has gone with it. You know, um, when, when I started the sanctuary, she had a bathroom with a heat lamp in it. So her bathroom became our nursery for all our lambs. So all this newspaper was covered over her floor and she had up to 30 lambs in her bathroom because she had a heat lamp to help keep them warm. And yep, Mum just went with a <laughs> and um, I'd often ring her up and um, Mum, I'd say, incoming, and she'd go, what species? And she'd be there waiting for me, God love her. That's so delightful. So I'm guessing it started with horses. You had cats and dogs, as you mentioned, when you were younger. The, I'm guessing horses were the gateway drug. Well, so when did the collection start to build? Well, actually, I cut my teeth on cat and dog rescue because my mum, who, who features quite heavily when I'm speaking, she loved cats. You know, I think she really fostered my my love of cats. And my dad was was involved in the law, and I think that's where my sense of justice came from. So the two married to create the melting pot of me. But my mum and I became involved in, in cat and dog rescue when we were foster carers for the local um, animal aid charity. And then when we moved over to the Willowhaven property with the horses, we actually found at the time the cats and dogs from the three local shires when their time was up at the pound, they were taken down to the tip and they, they were shot. And we were horrified. So we, we started the Central Highlands Animal Shelter way back then. And we would take the cats and dogs from the three local pounds and we would have them desexed and vaccinated at our own cost. And we would try and find homes for them that way. This is way before the internet and social media. Yeah. And we had landlines back then, didn't even have mobile phones. And I remember I would just get bits of A4 pieces of paper. And I'd cut out all pictures of cats and dogs from magazines and I'd stick them on there. And I'd have the little tear off strips at the bottom with our phone number. And I'd put them up in the local supermarkets and anywhere I could find to try and find homes for the cats and dogs that way and a bit of circumstance changed and we, we had to shut the cat and dog sanctuary and I remember the time it was the worst day of my life this is the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to me you know with the, what was going to happen to the cats and dogs and save a dog scheme in Melbourne took over the dogs and a lovely lady named Ingrid who runs a who started a cat sanctuary took the cats so the cats and dogs were catered for. And then not long after that, the opportunity to rescue Edgar Allan Pig came along and, and that was when the other sanctuary started. So it just shows you what you think is, is the worst day of your life can actually be an opportunity for something better because I would still have got Edgar, but I probably would have just kept him and just had a pet pig. But because I didn't have the, the cat and dog sanctuary, there was something in my life that still wanted to save animals and it gave me the opportunity to actually start the sanctuary for the rescued farmed animals. So there you go. You were doing some volunteering work with Animals Australia, if I got the story correct, and James Cromwell, who we all know as Farmer Hoggett from Babe, they're like, well, we'd better get a piglet because, you know, this is it. And uh, <laughs> so you, you were tasked with finding a piglet. Where does one acquire a piglet at short notice for a photo shoot? 
<laughs> oh, that's uh, that's really interesting. So I actually got him from a pig farm. He was actually a free range pig, and we we didn't steal him. We actually we bought him all legitimate. It was <laughs> the deal was done out of a, a, a dodgy little pub out the back of Ballarat. We met in the car park, and the pig was exchanged. And uh, I was so excited. I was so excited. I had my little dog ET with me, and I think it was one of the most joyous days of my life. I don't know if Edgar thought the same at the time. He was a bit annoyed, and uh, his world had been turned upside down. And took him home and his pet carrier was covered in pig poop and he buried himself in straw and he's a little bit grumpy and we had the photo shoot the next day and again mum was to the fore and that afternoon we're madly washing egg trying to get all the pig poop off him and have him clean for his photo shoot the next day and he got a little bit upset and pigs when they get upset they fart and um so we had this really uh great introduction to pig handling 101 and Edgar fell in love with my little dog, E.T., which was really wonderful. So the next day, the photo shoot went really, really well. Um, I had Edgar on little harness and we went around the backyard of this little place in Elwood and taking the photos with James and the pig. And the photographer was so impressed that I'd had this pig less than 24 hours and I taught him to walk on a lead and aren't you wonderful? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And James said, this is really good. You know, this is such an opportunity. I'm going to walk up the steps of Parliament House with Edgar by my side and we're going to demand a better deal for pigs. And we all thought this was an absolutely wonderful idea. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, now I'm actually really, really got to teach Edgar to walk on a lead. So then I went down to my local park and I had my little dog on one side and my little piggy on the other side. And I was actually teaching Edgar to walk on a lead and get accustomed to people being around him. And people literally came from everywhere. Oh, a pig on a lead? My gosh, you know, wow, this is unbelievable. Tell me, tell me more, tell me more. And it was watching people's interactions with Edgar that really, really got me thinking that the best way to change the way people think about the animals who are farmed for food and fibre are the animals themselves. I can speak to people's minds that Edgar eloquently oinked his way into their hearts, reminding that's where pigs really should be, not further south. And it was that that rubby's tummy go, 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 and he'd flop on his side and, oh, my God, he's, he's clean, he's gorgeous, he's better than my boyfriend, I love him. And that was really seeing the profound experiences people had from meeting a pig you know we have all these notions about pigs that you know they're dirty they're mean they're gluttonous and all these other sorts of things but when you meet a pig everything goes out the window they are without a doubt the cleanest animal i have ever encountered honestly if my horses were half as clean as the pigs are at the sanctuary i'd get about 10 years back on my life from cleaning out stables (laughs) (laughs) what you're describing there is there's a reason that slaughterhouses don't have glass walls. There's a reason that kind of the only time people who live in the city get to see farm animals is if they go to those particular sheds at the Easter show and there they are. We're like, there's a reason that you or I can't take a photo inside of a factory farm to separate ourselves from the realities of the food we eat it allows us to eat that food. But when you do get face-to-face, you just spend some time. Spend some time with a cow, all right? You hang mm. out with a with a cow for a while, then you tell me you want a burger. Like <laughs> mm. glorious, big mammalian things. They're lovely to be around. Absolutely delightful oh. to be around. And and to see a mother cow's love for her baby calf. I think that was one of the most joyous and, and, and saddest things that I've witnessed here at the sanctuary. You know, we've rescued many bobby calves over the years and they're the calves that are taken off their mothers so the mother's milk can be harvested for human consumption they're sent off to slaughter. I always wanted to rescue a mama cow and I think part of Edgar's mission, like it's created for so many reasons, but part of Edgar's mission is, is my living apology to the animals who I've caused to suffer because of the choices that they made. You know, we, we can never change the past. 
we can only shape the future. And that's what I'm trying to do is shape a kind of future for animals. And I wanted to ask your mama cow because, you know, all this focus on baby cows, and we tend to forget about the mothers who at the end of their productive life, which is nowhere near their natural life, but their bodies become worn out from producing all that milk and being impregnated, they get sent off to slaughter. And the opportunity came up several years ago to rescue um, mama cow. And we rescued Clarabelle. Now, Clarabelle was actually on her way to be slaughtered because she was not producing enough milk and she was at the end of a productive life. Clarabelle was pregnant. Clarabelle came to the sanctuary and she was due to give birth in late February. Now, Clarabelle, she's a little jersey with those big doe eyes. Clarabelle, like me, loves her food. She was always first up for her, her food of her, of her morning, but she started to be a little bit slow. And I just thought, well, she's getting near the end of her pregnancy. She's carrying a bubba calf around there. And I watched her one day. She was actually looking back, you know, up at the forest where she'd been and she was slowly coming up. And then she's munching on her hay, looking back up towards the forest. And I noticed one teat. Just one teat was big and engorged. And I thought, hello, hello, hello. So I followed her back to the forest. And there in the forest was this beautiful little doe-eyed baby calf just looking at the world, blinking away. And, wow, that's her baby. But she wasn't a newborn baby. She was about four or five days old. And we knew that because her umbilical cord was dry. Her bottom teeth had erupted through her gums, which they don't erupt till two or three days old. Her little feet, her hooves, had clearly been walking around on the soil. Clarabelle had been hiding a baby in the forest, coming up for food and going back to get a baby because she didn't want a baby taken away as every one of her babies before had been taken away. And I said to Kyle, who does our video, I said, we've got to make a video of this. this is, we've got to tell this story. So we go down to do the video and we're walking up the paddock and onto the looking for the calf. And um, I'm looking for the calf and Kyle goes, Look, stop it, Pam. I've got, I've got enough for you to sit. Kyle, I can't find the calf. Because what do you mean he can't find the calf? I said, well, she's not here in the forest. She's not here. I said, someone must have jumped the fence and stolen the calf. You know, what are we going to do? We look, couldn't find the calf. So we called everybody down to forensically sweep the paddock. And there in this little stand of cypress trees, there's a little bit of grass there, there was the baby. She'd moved the baby because we were going and checking on the baby every day. And she was so nervous that we were going to take her baby away like every baby being taken away. And there was not a dry eye amongst us as we're walking back because we actually we saw this. Like you hear these stories about how much these mama cows love their baby. But when you see it before you, even though she was at a sanctuary, she didn't know that that baby wasn't going to be taken away. About four or five years down the track, they're still together. Little Valentine, we called her Valentine because we found her on Valentine's Day and to celebrate the love of mamas and their babies. Baby still has a bit of a drink from mum every now and again. She's so much bigger than mama and they'll mutually groom each other and they're never far from the other side. And I think if, you know, you could give all these reasons about why, why dairy's bad and all this, I think that story just speaks to why I don't drink dairy. Just quickly popping into the conversation here to pay the bills really got to keep the lights on got to play an ad but before i play an ad i wanted to tell you about another episode that you might be interested in uh it's another episode with an activist who goes about his activism in a very different way peter drew he's an artist from adelaide australia he's very famous for his street poster campaigns aussie and uh, real australians say welcome he's written an incredible book called poster boy and it's episode 305 of this show. So if you want to scroll on, but I actually have his poster of Mongo Khan sitting right behind me right now. It's on my office wall. If you want to scroll back to episode 305, you can check out that conversation with Peter Drew. Most of the people that come up to me, I can have a decent conversation. It's not like when you're online and somebody is blasting vitriol at you and you can sort of dehumanize them so easily because it's just text on the screen. 
But when someone's in your face, even if they are just an ignorant racist, they're still human and their emotions are real. And every time it's happened to me, as defensive as I get, I always feel slightly guilty as well for just making them feel upset because that's not my aim. My aim is to try to talk to them and bring them closer to sort of a rational position. At the end of it, they're still probably a little bit xenophobic, but they may be a little bit less xenophobic. And so that's my aim. It's not to sort of purify the world and end racism because no one's that powerful. And so I just think having empathy for your enemies is actually a very valuable thing and it makes you more effective when it comes to trying to create change. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There was the ad. Now we're getting back to the show. You mentioned the the emotional effect of the people that come and volunteer at the sanctuary. It's one thing to randomly find a piglet in a dog park and be transformed by an interaction with an animal that you'd only ever eaten as bacon or pork chop or ham or whatever to suddenly go, oh, oh, wow, this is, okay, this is a different experience with this sentient being that I, I had hitherto yet not experienced. By the time people come to volunteer at your mission, they, they don't get there by accident. You know, people come to volunteer because they have a thing in their hearts, they have a purpose, they have a set of values that they want to abide by and they're taking an action in accordance with those values. Yet what have you noticed? What changes in people uh, as to how they interact with other people after they've spent a bit of time at Edgar's mission? I think we become kinder, we become more aware about the choices we make and how they impact upon others. Even even the language, you know, the language people will use becomes kinder. We see it with people who come to visit the sanctuary. You can see the, the ones that have come along because they're passionate animal lovers and they love their mission. They drag the boyfriend along. And you can even see changes in the boyfriend when, when they meet these animals and then hear, hear the stories of the animals. You know, we had a chap out the other day, an abattoir worker who had rescued a baby goat. And it was really, gosh, there was so much I wanted to say, but actually I thought, I don't need to say a thing. He just needs to connect with these animals and see the the beauty of what he's done. Like he saved a little goat and it, gosh, I don't know what's going through his mind now, but um, I want to give him a job. I want to give him a job here. But you you see profound experiences from people who have been here and, and have been, you know, part of these industries and have actually, you know, gone 360 and said, I don't want to be a part of it anymore because there is there is a kinder way of living that, that's more in sync with who we are that is not violent. There will actually 
ensure our survival as a species on the planet because we cannot keep going the way that we are. Um, we don't have to look any further than, you know, COVID that's causing the lockdown that we're going through. It's the way that we're treating animals is not sustainable on so many fronts. Let's talk a bit about that because it has been has been bandied about by people who make arguments against climate action. You know, it's, it's one of those classic, that's because he doesn't want you to ever eat steak again. You know, that's not exactly what's going on, but it's undeniable the link between factory farming and, and human sustenance based upon animal products and to the impact that it has upon our very atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. And not not just with COVID, you know, so many diseases, these animals. And if you've ever been into these facilities, you mentioned earlier, though, there's good reason why we don't have public tours of a factory farm. But these animals are crammed on mass, are denied any ability to express the most you know, basic of their natural behaviours. They become stressed. And it speaks to the similarity of these animals and the human animals that when we are stressed, our immune systems become lowered. Well, how do we combat that? You know, it's a great passageway for, for diseases to spread, the, the close proximities of the animals, of uh, the stress that they're in, enduring. And then how do we combat? Well, we give them antibiotics. And now we're finding huge antibiotic resistance in the human species. The most antibiotics consumed in Australia go to the animals who are farmed for food and fibre. It consumes most of the antibiotics in this, this country and antibiotics are losing their impact. You know, one of the things that uh, a lot of farmed animal species are allowed to have certain classes of antibiotics because they don't want them actually getting into, into the food chain. So we really need to look at, even from a human health point of view, about what we are doing to these animals. Now, working in those facilities, all the biosecurity that has to go with it because they don't want to introduce this disease into these animals that they know are stressed. Now, having animals in states of chronic stress is bad for the animals, but it's unethical as well. There's a huge push now about you know, looking about reducing the stress for farmed animals, not so much from an ethical point of view, but from a food production point of view, because they've actually found that these animals will grow faster and produce more food if they're not stressed. So they're actually trying to address from that angle. But we need to look at from another, what if we don't need to do this? What if we don't need to do these things to animals and we can still have happy and healthy lives and sustain us and people can become gainfully employed without causing suffering to animals? Now we have so many startup companies and, and, and food industries that are going global for plant-based meat. We even have, you know, Tyson Foods and these other food, animal-based food companies are actually investing in, in plant-based foods. There's a hint there. There's, there's more than a hint there that this is the way to go. So the companies that are right now making millions and millions of dollars farming and marketing packaged animal meat are investing in the development of plant-based meat. Yeah, yes. Yeah, th those investments don't happen by accident. Someone's come in and shown them the numbers. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. And it, it is. It's it's not an ethical thing. It's, you know, sometimes you'll see um, they might be doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. doesn't matter. If they're stopping to hurting animals, I think that's got to be a good thing. It's going to be a good thing for human health as well and the people that work in those industries. You know, my heart goes out to the people that, that work in those industries. And I think we should never shame or we should never judge because, you know, they're but a different choice in life. That, that could be us. You know, I don't think anyone ever, ever wants them to work in those industries that kill animals. I remember very, very early on, I was at a, a market one day and I had a petition to ban live export. And there was a guy that came up and he goes, oh, I don't want to sign that, you know, or I eat animals. And I said, oh, do you, what animals do you eat? And then he said, oh, yeah. and I work in an abattoir. And I said, well, where do you work in the abattoir? And I think this chap was actually one shocked because I didn't come back and, you know, have a go at him. I actually tried to engage in dialogue and I was talking to him and, you know, he had a little girl with him. 
it was his daughter, and, he, and then he started to lower his voice because I wasn't yelling at him, talking about what, what he actually did in the abattoir, and he was telling me about he was a sticker and he was the one that stick the, the, the knife into the, um, the throat of the, the animals. And I said, oh, gosh, that must be quite difficult for you. He says, yeah, it is. He said, you know, they look in their eyes. And he was starting to tear up telling me things. And I think because he wanted to see me as, as the enemy. And I said, well, actually, that's your job's getting exported um, overseas with the live export, by the way. But speaking to him with compassion and, and kindness and sympathy and, and empathy for what he was doing. And I, I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. And he said, look, he said, you know, um, it's the only place I can get a job. It's the only place I can get a job. And um, I've got a female little girl here. And I thought, wow, you know, that was very early on in, in my activism. And we don't think about that. You know, yeah. I don't think people actually get up and want to go, I actually want to go and kill animals, but he needed to feed his little girl. Yeah, I've I've been quite vocal over the course of this show talking about, like, I, I contributed to your book. I generally yeah. don't do things for, uh, shall we say, high-profile vegan places. Because to be honest with you, Pam, I get, quite turned off by the purity race, the race to, okay, you wear leather shoes when you go to work so that doesn't technically make you vegan. It's like, mate, I'm a big fan of the idea of don't let perfect be the enemy of good, you know, and if we demand purity, it's this or nothing, you're never, ever going to get it. And, Pam, as we sit here, as you and I sit here talking, there are animal products involved in our conversation today. And we can't deny that. You know, mm. it's a part of the, the headphones mm. I'm wearing. There's, there's probably somewhere along the chain between me seeing your face and you're seeing my face, there's an animal product. And we can't avoid that living in a, in a modern world. And there's probably a lot of people listening that will, could resonate with that. So if we can't avoid, even at our best efforts, causing harm, how can we be okay with it? How can we still try to do our best? I think we should always try and do our best. I think that is the, the best we can do and recognise that everybody is at a different stage of the journey of their life and judging people and shaming people is going to shut the conversation down. That's the last thing we need to do. If we really, really care about changing the world for animals, we need to engage people. We need to have compassion and kindness and understand that by judging people and condemning them, we are shaming them and we're repelling them. That's the last thing we want to do. And as you said, there are animal products. I've, I've got tyres on my car and they involve animal products. I use that car to drive out and save animals so it is being the best that we possibly can be and realize that change is happening you know change and and i I have every confidence you know i have cats here at the sanctuary and and those cats you know have meat products some of them the cats have have vegan food in their diet but honestly you try talking ethics to a cat and i go yeah yeah yeah, now pass me the endangered tuna you know it's not a perfect world but i think one of the spin-offs with all this new uh lab-grown meat and all these plant-based meats i think we're actually going to have vegan cat food that the cats will actually eat (laughs) i think cats are our last frontier in veganism we know what they nutritionally but you know edit wise cats yeah they're a cat um love them dearly love them dearly but uh yeah that's that's cats and everybody's at a different stage of their journey of life and i remember this comes back to actually how i started in my activism and i i saw an ad in the newspaper i was rescuing cats and dogs and it was for companies that don't test on animals for your household products and i thought wow that's really good you know i can get toothpaste and cleaning products that test on animals, don't test on animals, both do the same job, I'm going to get the one that's not test on animals. So I sent off for the little leaflet and it came out and it got updated every so often because new products came on the board and companies got changed and their ethics changed and what have you. One time it came out and had a little ad in there for an anti-fur rally. And I thought, well, fur's really cool. You know, we don't need to wear fur. One of those things, you know, we've come away from the cave days. We've got so many other things that we can clothe ourselves with that don't involve animals. So I rang up to go to the anti-fur rally and I was talking to the lady um, on the phone and I said, look, I'd love to come to the rally, but I do eat meat. And she says, that's okay. 
what she said to me was my founding basis for all our activism here at Edgar's Mission, is that it's not so much what's on your plate, it's how it gets there. Will you think about that for me? I said, yes, 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 of course I will. So I went along to the rally. Now she goes, oh, you fool, you know, meat is murder. How can you possibly come to the, the rally if you know you're not a, a card-carrying vegan? But she didn't. She was kind to me. She engaged me. She encouraged me to think about my values. So I went along to the rally wearing my um, woolen skirt and leather shoes and leather belt. And I was listening to all those conversations that were, were buzzing around me. And this book called Animal Liberation kept popping up all the time. And I was intrigued, but, you know, my dad, he'd warned me about, you know, those liberationists, you know, the terrorists, the wackos, the hippies and all those, you know, going to ruin the world. But it had the word animal in it. So I was curious. So I got a copy of the book by Peter Singer. And just in the dust jacket of the book, it was talking about the time when Peter was taken to the local chapter of the RSPCA in England by some mutual friends. And he was there and he was talking about animals and how they could better the world for animals. And they were getting along really well. And then it came time for afternoon tea and they served ham sandwiches. And Peter Singer goes, well, that's odd. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's got a point. You know, here was I saying, you know, I cared deeply about animals and, and um, was, was eating them and expected people to take me seriously. So for me, that was when I became the vegan overnight. That was my epiphany. <laughs> Everybody's at a different stage of their journey in life and nobody is going to be a bigger pain in the neck as me to actually live it with that crappy soy milk that I had to drink, the powdered stuff and the raw tofu. Everybody's different. Everybody's different, but really we have that beautiful heart. We do have that natural empathy. You know, people are outraged when we see acts of violence. You know, there was that situation uh, a little while ago in South Australia where the, where the policeman stoned the wombat. There was absolute outrage for that. You know, that innocent being was being targeted by someone who was bigger and stronger, and we know that might should never make right. Yet we don't realise that we actually do those things to animals every day of the week. We need to engage people in these conversations of kindness and meet them where they're at, not where we want them to be, because we may not be right. I, I guess the big question is that a lot of this has got to do with, I guess, the rules that were set up by the society that we've lived in for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And if people are listening and they're like, well, this all sounds like, I dig what you're saying here, Pam, but it's all I've ever known and it's just the abyss on the other side. I actually can't picture it. I can't imagine my life any different. So I won't do a thing. You know, what, would you, what would you say to that? Well, the evolution of our species has been to question. Like we have been questioning what we've done for, for generations and that's why we now have computer screens and we don't have stone tablets to communicate with one another. It's been our ability to question what has gone before us and have the courage to accept, okay, we can do better here. And one of, I think, the great things about our species is that we can evaluate, that we can stop and we can reflect about kinder ways of doing things, safer ways of doing things. You know, that has been the, one of the, the hallmarks of civilization to look at those things. And I only have to go back to my youth. You know, we'd get in the car and we'd go for drives in the country to try and find animals to look at. We would never, ever put a seatbelt on. We never put a seatbelt on. We weren't bad people. We weren't thumbing our nose at the law. It wasn't the law. But society was looking at how we can make car travel safer because people were being killed is a result of car accidents, how we can make it safer. We were never going to stop driving cars. We were going to find a safer way of doing things because new information came along. We were scrutinising what we were doing. And now we're being called to scrutinise our food supply because what it's doing to animals, what it's doing to people, what it's doing to the planet and what it's doing to our humanity. And we must have the courage to do that and also the compassion. And if you're worried about what you're going to cook for dinner, Edgar's Mission conveniently has a fantastic cookbook that they just put out <laughs> and you will find my wife Audrey's eggplant palmy recipe in there. And I can honestly say it's delicious. 
Pam, I'm so grateful that we could see each other again. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. I know you work, you work like every day of the year. You never, ever, 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 ever stop. <laughs> so thank you for taking time to do this. And um, I really hope when Wolf is a bit older and we all get vaccinated and we can finally come and visit, we can come and spend some time down at your mission. Bless. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Pam Ahern. Look at that. Changed your entire life. Was going to be an equestrian super champ. And um, her whole life changed because of one pig. Pretty wild. An incredible tale. And I'm stoked that you stuck with it. And I'm stoked that you listened. Thank you so much. If you want to support Pam, just look up Edgar's mission. You'll find many ways that you can support her. You can also, you know, support her by buying their new cookbook. It's called Kindness Community Vegan Cookbook. And there's a recipe in there that my my Audrey, my wife Audrey, put together. All right, legends, I've got a jet. Thursday, you'll hear Idle Australians with me and Jimmy. And on Friday, I'll be back here. So thank you so much for listening. Until we speak then, thank you very much to Andy Marr for helping me make this show. Rachel Barrett, who executive produced the show, and Brianna on the research. Thank you heaps, all and sundry. Until I speak to you next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.